Hello and welcome to Nature Snippets, a podcast about the natural world, about organisms you may find in your backyard and beyond. I'm Declan McCabe, coming to you from St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. I'm releasing an impromptu podcast today in response to the flooding event that has happened in Vermont. This has been recorded out in the floodplain, and so the audio quality will not be what you're used to. There are planes flying over because I'm in a flight path most of the time, and occasionally the wind blows. So I usually start my podcasts with a little bit of ambiance music provided by the birds that I found online. But the birds you're hearing now are actually being recorded live because I'm in the St. Michael's College natural area. I'm down here because yesterday, on July 11th, we experienced one of the largest floods, in fact, the largest flood to affect the natural area ever, as far as we know, since records began. The way that we can tell how large the flood was is partly by looking at the gauge in Essex Junction, which is the Winooski River gauge, and we can compare the water level on that gauge to past floods. So we know that the current flood reached levels higher than the flood in 2011, for example, which was caused by Tropical Storm Eileen. Some interesting things occur to me as I look across the landscape. There's been such human tragedy and destruction caused by this flood that I hesitate to totally nerd out on the event. But I'm a biologist and I love the natural world and seeing the flood in this landscape provides an opportunity to talk about what flooding does and how we can safely handle flooding and things of that nature. As you approach a rising flood in a floodplain landscape, you should expect to see the rising edge of the water And you can very, very easily tell if it's the rising edge or the declining edge. The easiest way, of course, is to knock in a marker and see if that marker quickly becomes submersed. But even more rapidly than that, just look at the edge and see if there are bubbles. And look, and if you see bubbles, you know that that's a wormhole or an insect hole giving up its air and being flooded as the water advances. There's even easier evidence if the flood is declining. You won't see so many bubbles like that, but more importantly, you'll see a high water mark. You'll see a bathtub ring, if you like, of sediment deposited on all of the vegetation. And that is an interesting part of the flood and also something I really want to focus on. The vegetation I'm looking at that's close to the water is still brown and still has wet sediment clinging to it and the higher vegetation that has had the chance to dry as this flood recedes looks a little bit whiter sort of a gray sort of a gray brown pale layer of sediment the sediment is important for a number of reasons and the vegetation is critical for a number of reasons so these are floodplain wetlands you know This is a natural floodplain insofar as that exists in our modern world. And it's vegetated, it's heavily vegetated. 
Parts of the floodplain were recently in agriculture, as recently as 2018, and we would have had corn stalks out there, and they also would have been coated. Unless, of course, you came for a fall flood, in which case the corn would have been removed and the bare soil would have been subject to erosion. And so we lost soil for many years from this spot in the Winooski floodplain at St. Michael's College. But now we gain soil. So the reason we care about the soil and the sediment, or at least one of the reasons, is we are concerned in Lake Champlain with beach closings. The beaches are closed primarily because of toxic algal blooms, and those blooms are fed by phosphorus that washes off our landscape. Most of the phosphorus moves to the lake when we have a large flooding event like the one we just experienced. And so we get large quantities of phosphorus moving with large volumes of water. The advantage of the vegetation in the floodplain is that every leaf and every blade of grass and every stalk that accumulates some sediment represents some phosphorus that has been captured and not sent down to Lake Champlain. And the next thing that will happen is during some rain event in the future, which could actually happen very, very soon based on the forecast, that sediment will wash down and much of it will wash down and be trapped in the soil beneath these plants. And from there, the plants will actually be nourished by that phosphorus. And so instead of that phosphorus moving straight to Lake Champlain and causing an algal bloom, it will in fact become plant material and that plant material will then feed insects and will in turn feed the birds that we all like to watch out here and so in a very real sense this flood is replenishing the base of the floodplain food web i'm excited about that and i'm also excited about the fact that we have more than 179 bird species recorded in this particular little patch of floodplain I know this because the folks who are using eBird are what I consider professional birders. In other words, birders who are just very, very good at what they do. They're not professional in the sense that no one is actually giving them any money for these wonderful data sets, but they are in fact contributing valuable data. And I at least use the data immediately in my fall course. My students are required to make bird observations and then compare several sites, and in turn, compare those sites using the eBird data and see if their observations in terms of the number of species match up to what we find on eBird. I see a couple of red-winged blackbirds flying by as I chat here, and I'm hearing a catbird. The flood has passed for now and is receding, and I have banged in some stakes to measure and mark the high water mark. We'll be installing permanent 4x4s to mark the high water event because it is truly a historic event. In the fall, our students in Biology 151 used the floodplain as a teaching opportunity. And this year they'll have something else to talk about because we will in fact have just had this experience with this amazing flood and we are documenting the heck out of it. And what I mean by that is I want them to have a picture in their head of what the landscape looks like underwater. And the way we're going to accomplish that is I'm borrowing some surveying equipment from an engineering friend of mine. And uh, it's very simple, really. It's um, a rod and a level. 
and essentially the level is a telescope on a tripod which you can use to look in a uniform plane across the landscape. The rod is simply a ruler, a very large ruler, which you've probably seen at the side of the road. Some guy is holding the rod and somebody else is looking through a telescope. And so we're going to translate the high water mark back out across the floodplain and use a series of markers that essentially say things like, had you been on this point in 2023 at February 11th, you would have been under 12 feet of water. So those are the kinds of things we'd like our students to be able to visualize. And so those markers will be going in as the water recedes. More than that, we're just happy to have a natural floodplain where we can go and take soil samples and use them uh, in, in our labs. We can take samples in the floodplain. We can go then and compare those to a cornfield, which typically would have less organic material because of constant harvesting. We can compare to recently est established natural area land, which is um, regenerating floodplain forest. We can compare that to longer established upland forest in the same area. And there's a whole lot of comparisons we can make. Anyway, I hope that you have all stayed safe during this flood. I'm going to make one more recording from another location. And um, that will be it. I'm recording from my neighborhood and I'm walking along the road that runs from Williston into South Burlington and it crosses Allenbrook followed by Muddy Brook. Allenbrook comes from the town of Williston, drains across and into a place where it meets with Muddy Brook. Muddy Brook comes from Shelburne Pond. By the time they reach my neighborhood, at what is called Muddy Brook Natural Area. They are really, really low gradient. And so when the river floods, the water that would have been running downstream suddenly starts running upstream. So low gradient systems are typically feeding water into the Winooski River, in this case. And then that water gets pushed back up quite a distance when the river floods. So that's what I'm seeing. The resulting flood has caused our road to be closed, so you can't drive from my house to Williston anymore. But there are other ways to get out of the neighborhood, so it's not like we are suffering any great damage here as far as my house has gone. None of the houses in my neighborhood are affected. We're all high and dry. So I've just walked out of the part of the, that road that is flooded and closed. So I've gone from smushy smushy underfoot to uh, freshly groomed gravel underfoot. The, sound, the town of South Burlington has been out with their grader. So hopefully you can still hear me speak. We'll find out when I play it back. <laughs> but there's a lot of birds in common here with what I get in the natural area. But I just noticed a belted kingfisher flying by, which is kind of cool. Hi all those like kingfishers. They're amazing birds. And it is interesting to see what has happened. One of the eerie things, walking the road right now, I'm walking right down the middle of the road. Ordinarily, I would be watching out for vehicles. Often I wear a mask. Oh my, two goldfinches, beautiful. Ordinarily, I wear a mask because it gets quite dusty down here. But a couple of things have happened. First of all, the rain has knocked down all of the dust. 
but secondly there are no vehicles to kick it up because the road is still flooded between Allen Brook and Muddy Brook and I'm not sure when it will be reopened. I'm just approaching the fence now where um, the Muddy Brook natural area lets in and um, <laughs> there will not be much reason to go in there because all of the trails are flooded. And the same is true on the other side of the river in the St. Michael's College natural area. We have four miles of trail over there. Two miles are entirely closed. Those of you who know the area will be familiar with the Mike New Trail and also the Jeff Vincent Trail. Both of those trails are completely submerged at this point. The red connector and the green connector, the two trails that go down from the high ground down into the field, um, I would say both of those are 75 to 80 percent underwater. So if you are visiting the St. Michael's College Natural Area the day after I release this, you might just be using the blue trail because there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> but hey, you know, you can still use the blue trails. Um, interesting thing as I go down into the Muddy Brook Natural Area here as far as I can go, um, there are frogs up here in places that are ordinarily so high and dry that I would never see a frog. The um, little bin where people have their dispensers for doggy do bags or whatever you call those is uh, completely caked in sediment so that'll have to be cleaned out and refreshed with new bags that are not covered in sediment. The other concern of course with all this sediment is that because of this flooding some of our sewage plants upstream have been entirely submerged, entirely inundated and therefore any contaminants that you might expect to come out of a sewage plant would have been washed out. The other issue of course is that even with sewage plants that are high and dry, unless you have pristine pipes, you're gonna have some issues when you get heavy rain anyway. And the reason being that if you have even a little bit of uh, damage in your pipes because they're aging, you're gonna get some holes in those pipes and it's not a concern that the sewage might leak out into the natural environment close by those pipes. The bigger concern is actually water leaking in. And so when you get a lot of rainfall and you get, you know, those pipes naturally accumulating some of that rainfall, instead of having your typical load of liquids coming to your sewage plant, you have a delivery that's like a fire hose and you're faced with a difficult choice. Should you take all that water and allow it into your sewage plant? Or should you bypass the sewage plant and release raw sewage to the rivers? There is your question. Now, the way most sewage plants work is they have what's called activated sludge. And it's basically bacteria in suspension, constantly being agitated. And those bacteria consume phosphorus, they consume nitrogen, and they provide opportunities to remove contaminants from the sewage that comes in the door, so to speak. If you allow the fire hose to go through your sewage plant, it washes out all of that activated sludge. And there are two problems with that, at least. First problem is the sludge is not good for the river downstream. It has an extremely high biological oxygen demand, which means that the bacteria breaking down that sludge will suck oxygen out of the water, potentially killing fish downstream. That's your first problem. Second problem is it takes some time to establish the activated sludge and get it working. And once it's up and running and working, 
it's very effective at taking phosphorus and nitrogen out of the sewage and you don't want to waste that activated sludge by washing it into a stream. So there are your two issues. And so frequently the decision will be made to flip a valve and bypass a sewage plant so that the raw sewage and all the rainwater is delivered straight to a river. At that point a lot of people will write to the newspaper and complain about the many many gallons of raw sewage dumped in the river. And while I get that, I also wonder how those people would feel if I said I can fix this problem for you by raising your taxes substantially and fixing all the pipes. So there's your dilemma. Do you want to invest in the new pipes and replace your aging infrastructure? Or do you want to occasionally bypass the sewage plant? So there you go. It's always, uh, you know, trade-offs. Trade-offs in life and trade-offs in how we manage our municipal utilities. But I would encourage people to think more thoughtfully, you know, before you write to the newspaper and complain about the gallons of sewage, maybe write and say, hey, how about we invest in those pipes? How do you think? Anyway, these are some of the issues that occur around flooding. Of course, Based on what I just described, the water that is in a flood is not water you want to be making contact with. It's very, very likely that the water will be contaminated with bacteria, and at least some of those bacteria will be of human waste origin. So, don't swim in the flood. You know, if you decide that you're going to kayak in the flood, which I'm not recommending at all, <laughs> but at least go home and take a shower sure as heck you got splashed once or twice while you were out there. Anyway, that's all I have for you right now. Some other flooding thoughts have occurred to me on my walk home. First of those is what happens to the wildlife in the floodplain. When I peruse the floodplain at St. Michael's College, I regularly see deer beds. So these are places where the vegetation has been flattened down and the deer bed down for the day. And so they're quite easy to identify and in circumstances where the water is rising the deer would certainly be flushed out of those areas and uphill. Other things like rodents would also be flushed out and while that's a disadvantage for the rodent it is sometimes a boon for their predators. So just the other day I watched as a weasel, I think it was a long-tailed weasel, but I'm not sure. It moved by pretty rapidly I watched as the weasel tried to get a juvenile woodpecker while the mom was rapidly dive bombing and trying to rescue her baby. Well then the weasel saw me and my collaborator and left. So animals are certainly displaced by the flood. My other concern in the flood is about ground nesting birds and we certainly have a lot of those at St. Michael's College in the natural area. Based on the birds nesting in my yard, by now they certainly have fledged their first nest. The house wrens on my fence fledged their nest and a male is back singing again trying to establish a second nest. There are some brown thrashers who also nested on the other side of my house and there were three brown thrasher nest nestlings who uh, were flopping around my yard one of them was beautifully showering under a hose drip 
which was very cool. So, our ground nesting birds down in the floodplain are very likely to have fledged their first nest and they may well be disrupted now by the flood as they try to establish a second nest, but who knows, it depends on the species I guess. But they will recover and they'll find places. Floods have happened before and will happen again. If you've been around New England for as long as I have, you may have noticed that the frequency of large floods has increased. And it's not just you, this is what's actually happening, it's well documented. There was a sort of a tipping point in 1996 or so, and since then we have had more floods, more large floods I should say, and particularly in the fall. When I look at the hydrograph in Essex Junction for the Winooski River and I look at the stats, I've been at St. Michael's College for 22 years, and during that time we have experienced three hundred-year floods. I won't pretend to be a statistician for very long here, but it strikes me that three one-hundred-year floods in a 22-year period tells you something about, number one, the basis for the one-hundred-year flood line, which was probably established before I got to St. Mike's and maybe before the tipping point in the 1990s. And secondly, that it's a small little nugget of evidence to suggest that we have in fact had more floods than one would expect based on prior history. I'm also aware that a study was done by a Dr. Winter out of Dartmouth indicating precisely that. So climate change is a real thing, of course, and one symptom in the Northeast is because of the increased moisture in the atmosphere and other circumstances, the climate is certainly shifting and shifting towards much more rain than we had, particularly in the fall. So there you go. We should be planning to consider carefully what infrastructure we maintain in flood-prone areas and how we maintain that infrastructure. The Winooski River Corridor is the natural place to put many, many things because it is the way to get through the Green Mountains. And so we have rail, we have the highway, we have the road that preceded the highway, and they all go through the Winooski River floodplain and all have been at least at risk by both Hurricane Irene and now this July 11th flooding. So there you go. Things have changed and we should prepare for that change. We should also do what we can to mitigate and reduce climate change to the extent that we possibly can and realize that every one of us has a role to play in that. The flood waters are receding. It's um, questionable regarding how fast they will recede because the forecast is for more rain. Typically you expect the flood is going to rise, it will rise rapidly and then it will tail off more slowly on the other end. But if you get rainfall, then you can surely expect it's going to take a heck of a lot longer. So I'll leave you with this. I hope that everyone is safe. I hope that you haven't had a lot of destruction where you are. And uh, I'll do a new podcast in the fall from maybe the shade or maybe the studio at St. Michael's College, where I will be. In either case, 
high and dry and well above the Winooski River floodplain. Thanks folks, bye. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed Nature Snippets, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be coming back to you on about a monthly basis. I'm Declan McCabe coming to you from St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. Thank you.